In Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. He had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him, saw that he had faith to be healed, and called out, Stand up on your feet. At that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted out in the Laconian language, The gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. The priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and reeds to the city gates because he and the crowd wanted to offer offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd, shouting, Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way, yet he has not left left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, they had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, strengthening the disciples and encouraging them to remain true to the faith. We must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God, they said. Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and, with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord, in whom they had put their trust. After going through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia, and when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. La lectura de hoy viene del libro de Hechos, capítulo 14, versículos 8 al 25. En Listra vivía un hombre lisiado de nacimiento, que no podía mover las piernas y nunca había caminado. Estaba sentado, escuchando a Pablo, quien, al reparar en él y ver que tenía la fe para ser sanado, le ordenó con voz fuerte, «Ponte en pie y enderezate». El hombre dio un salto y empezó a caminar. Al ver que Pablo había lo que Pablo había hecho, la gente comenzó a gritar en el idioma de Licaonia. Los dioses han tomado forma humana y han venido a visitarnos. A Bernabé lo llamaban Zeus y a Pablo Hermes, porque era el que dirigía la palabra. El sacerdote de Zeus, el dios cuyo templo estaba a las afueras de la ciudad, llevó toros y guirnaldas a las puertas y, con toda la multitud, quería ofrecerles sacrificio. Al enterarse de esto, los apóstoles Bernabé y Pablo se rasgaron las vestiduras y se lanzaron por entre la multitud, gritando, «Señores, ¿por qué hacen esto? Nosotros también somos hombres mortales como ustedes. Las buenas nuevas que les anunciamos es que dejen estas cosas sin valor y se vuelvan al Dios viviente que hizo el cielo, la tierra, el mar y todo lo que hay en ellos». En épocas pasadas, Él permitió que todas las naciones siguieran su propio camino. Sin embargo, no ha dejado de dar testimonio de sí mismo haciendo el bien, dándoles lluvias del cielo y estaciones fructíferas, proporcionándoles comida y alegría de corazón. 
A pesar de todo lo que dijeron, a duras penas evitaron que las multitudes les ofrecieran sacrificios. En eso, llegaron de Antioquía y de Iconio unos judíos que hicieron cambiar de parecer a la multitud. Apedrearon a Pablo y lo arrastraron fuera de la ciudad, creyendo que estaba muerto. Pero cuando lo rodearon los discípulos, él se levantó y volvió a entrar a la ciudad. Al día siguiente, partió para Derbe en compañía de Bernabé. Después de anunciar las buenas nuevas en aquella ciudad y de hacer muchos discípulos, Pablo y Bernabé regresaron a Listra, a Iconio y a Antioquía, fortaleciendo a los discípulos y animándolos a perseverar en la fe. Es necesario pasar por muchas dificultades para entrar en el reino de Dios, les decían. En cada iglesia nombraron ancianos y con oración y ayuno los encomendaron al Señor, en quien habían creído. Atravesando Pisidia, llegaron a Panfilia, y cuando terminaron de predicar la palabra en Pergue, bajaron a Atalía. Thank you, Ben and Daniel. Let's say a word of prayer together, and we're going to dive in. Let's pray. God, we pray that you would come now, as you said you would. When your word is proclaimed and explained and savored, and so we pray that you would give, them, give us wisdom to understand, to apply, to respond personally and as a community. Pray that you would give me help, that I wouldn't get in the way of what you have in store for us, that you would unleash your true word, and that you would bless this time. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been and will be um, unpacking together the vision and mission of this church, it being sort of a kickoff season, back to school, a good chance for us to review and to rehearse together this important question, why are we here? Why does Grace Meridian Hill exist as a particular church here in this part of the universe? And what you find On page eight of your bulletin, if you haven't seen it already, is a simple vision and mission statement that we try to operate by. Our vision is a true neighborhood. Our mission is to build a gospel community that is spiritually diverse, cross-cultural, and neighborhood-centered for the good of our neighbors and the glory of Jesus Christ in Columbia Heights, Mount Pleasant, Adams Morgan, and beyond. And that is a mouthful and a mindful, and so we have been taking Uh, one word or theme or phrase, keywords at a time, and two weeks ago talked about what, what do we mean by gospel, at least in parts, what do we mean by that? Last week we talked about the idea of community, and today I want to camp out on this commitment that we have as a church to be and to become what we like to call a spiritually diverse community. A community that's committed to walking with those who have honest questions and honest doubts about the Christian faith. A church that's committed to creating an environment where people of a variety of different spiritual and religious backgrounds might feel welcomed into this place so that they genuinely can, maybe for the first time, engage with God in Jesus Christ. Which, of course, doesn't mean that everything about our community will be easy 
or comfortable for you. That's not the ultimate goal, but rather we hope that your time will be meaningful, fruitful, productive in your soul so that you can encounter Jesus Together with all of us, because that's the goal, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, to encounter Jesus. And so that some of you might start to see your life in the world in a whole new light because of him. Which means, we'll just say it from the outset, which means if you are someone here today that is looking into the Christian faith. You're investigating the claims of Jesus or you just don't know what to believe. And so you've just limped into a church service. Hoping maybe you'll pick something up. That you would understand that as our mission statement puts it pretty clear, I hope, dear friends, we are here for you. Not as an afterthought. Not as a church extracurricular activity, but as part of our central commitments for why this church was started up in the first place here in this neighborhood. And I want to explain a little bit more of what we mean by this. And to do that, we're going to be looking at a little passage that is taken from the book of Acts. A place where the author Luke describes a visit of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas to the city of Lystra, which is in the region of Lyconia, ancient Asia Minor, which is modern Turkey. One of their visits to a small town, a little countryside area, and looking at the way in which they engaged with the people and us learning about the sort of community that we are trying to be for you. And what kind of community is that? It's simply this. First, a community that shows and tells the Christian faith. A community that meets you where you're at, not where we are. And a community that's patiently committed. Patiently committed to you. Let's take a look at each of those pieces. First, a community that shows and tells. You'll see in the first few verses of this passage, in verses 8 through 11, that first paragraph there, we see that Paul and Barnabas not only speak to the people of Lystra about what they later called the good news about Jesus Christ, they also heal a man. That's how this whole story starts off. A man who had been physically disabled since birth, never walked a day in his life, and by the power of God, Paul calls out, Stand up on your feet and we're told the man jumped up and began to walk. And even though I know the very idea of miracles might be a challenge for many of you, I want to first put our attention upon this idea. How did the crowd respond? Well, we're told in verse 11 that the crowd saw what Paul had done and they were interested and fully engaged in a totally new way. Do you remember in elementary school, the little activity that you'd have once in a while, perhaps, if you grew up here in this country, going to elementary school here, that thing called show and tell, where you were invited to go home and maybe bring a little gadget or something that you love from home, maybe something from your summertime to share about what you did while you were on break. 
You bring an item and you tell your class about it, but you bring the thing itself so that people can see it and experience it. You tell them about it, but you also show them so you can visually and sometimes even physically experience the same message that you're conveying with your mouth. Being a spiritually diverse community entails this commitment that as we communicate and share our lives in the gospel, that we not only talk about it, but we show it in our lives. In the Bible, communicating the gospel to those who are new to it should always be show and tell, tell and show. Not just verbally talking about who Jesus is or how does the Christian faith differ from other belief systems, why does it matter, but putting some flesh on that faith and on those ideas and on those beliefs, showing and seeing the way that faith looks in real life. To show how it changes a person's relationship to the poor, how it shapes the way you treat your kids, how it shapes the way you approach your job day in and day out, how you deal with stress, how it impacts your whole life. In other words, it needs to include not just telling people, not just telling you about God, but inviting you to take the dress into the dressing room to try it on, see how it fits before you buy it, you see. Which is why this is absolutely an invitation into community. Where we want to be a church that's a place where you're invited to spend time in the community. Not just hearing in places like this about Christian faith, but sharing life and sharing meals and laughing and talking and walking and serving together because God is meant to be discovered in the context of real relationships in authentic community. And so the invitation to you really is, is not just to hide out, nor simply to expect us to say, hey, here, here's a book and why don't you figure it out on your own and come back when you're ready, but rather we're here for you. We want to walk with you, answer questions, go nuts about the hard things that are hard to get a mind and a heart around, not to have you figure it out on your own, but to say, come with me to my neighborhood group, midweek, mini communities, small groups in people's homes throughout the week. Come with me to our mom's group. Come with me to this service project. Come with me as I learn how to mentor and tutor one of our neighborhood kids so that you can see right along with me and experience together with me. Not just what I believe, but what belief looks like in real life and love and action. Just like with the Lystrans, when they saw what Paul did and they started to listen to what he said, we long for this community to be a place where you feel more drawn in because of what you see in the lives of people. Christians, of course, that means invite people in. That you might tell and show and show and tell. Well, as the story goes, the people are so amazed at the man's healing that they conclude the gods have come down to us in human form. I mean, what else would you expect? Right? What else could you conclude? Scholars point out 
that actually there was a local legend that was embedded embedded in the hearts and minds of the local Lystrans there. A legend about how Zeus, the chief Greek god, and Hermes, the messenger god, one day, not too long ago, had showed up in human form in that region, and most everybody missed it. So they're not going to miss out this time. They decide Barnabas was Zeus and Paul was Hermes. And in verse 13, we're told that people are just ready to offer sacrifices to them. And Paul and Barnabas, they will not let this happen. And in verses 14 through 17, we find a summary of their explanation, their sermon, their teaching to the Lystran crowd. And it's there that we encounter our second point. That being a spiritually diverse community means not only being a community committed to showing and telling the reality of the gospel, but also it means being a community that meets you, dear friend, where you are at. Where you are at in your journey, where you are at in your understanding and your grasp of things. Notice, first of all, the way in which Paul and Barnabas show respect. How do Paul and Barnabas address the crowd in verse 15? What do they say? You idiots! You godless heathens! How can you dare do this? You really haven't been reading your Bible, have you? No, 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 no. What do they say? Friends. Friends, why are you doing this? Treating us like God. You know, being a church community that's committed to this vision of spiritual diversity means treating you, dear friends, with respect, taking your questions and your objections seriously. It means understanding that you're not resistant just because you haven't thought about it or you're not resistant because you haven't read enough because you're resistant Because it's a real resistance issue. And because some of these things are hard to get your mind around. And the idea of Jesus Christ not only dying but rising from the dead is something that Christians need to come to terms with as being crazy talk. (laughs) And to respect the person that says, that's hard for me. To say, oh my gosh, no kidding. Isn't it? It's why when I finally turned the corner, it changed my life. Not because it was a natural belief or an easy belief, but because it was still true. A hard belief that changed my life. To respect people's positions and where they're at, which of course does not mean that there isn't a place for challenge. Look, it doesn't mean that they're not speaking with emotion. Paul and Barnabas, they're crying out. They're even tearing their clothes, which, of course, is an ancient cultural way of showing their distress that they're being treated like gods. Yes, they do challenge. Yes, they do offer an alternate way of seeing life and of seeing God. They say, turn from your idols. They say, believe in this God. Yes, but they do it with humble respect. Secondly, they establish common ground with the people. They not only respect them, they establish common ground. The Lystrians are treating them like gods. And so what do Paul and Barnabas say in verse 15? No, no, we too are only humans like you. 
My goodness, this is an amazing attitude to have. Because isn't it all too common for Christians or even just religious people in general to talk in such a way in which you are looking down on people that don't share your beliefs? Where you maybe engage folks, but you patronize them. And maybe some of you feel burned by Christians because that's the way you've been treated in the past. Being treated like you're less than human, treated like you're an enemy, or maybe worse, a project. Or a problem to solve. A heart and life to conquer. In his book, The Heart of Evangelism, Jerem Bars says this about this passage. Even when faced with such rampant paganism, the Apostle Paul never lost sight of the true humanity of these people, nor of his own shared identity with them. You see, Paul points us in a different direction. That's what you might call the attitude of empathy. This sense that as you are connecting with people that don't share your beliefs, that you would be able to come in with the attitude and the posture of, you know what, I I do know a little bit of what it's like to be you. I've been there. Maybe it wasn't that long for me myself. I understand what it's like to doubt. To be able to say, yeah, even as a Christian, I myself struggle with doubt. Yeah, that one area of belief that you just think is really impossible for you. I get it. Sometimes on good days, it feels impossible for me too. The problem of evil, how to reconcile the suffering of this world with the idea of a loving God. This idea of judgment and the salvation that's offered in Jesus. All these things to say, yeah, I get you. I've been there. I feel you when you tell me. It's hard to believe. But thirdly, what we also see here in Paul and Barnabas, thirdly, is that they speak the people's language. They speak the people's language. Now, I don't mean that literally they spoke the people's language. In fact, it's pretty clear from this passage in verse 11 that when the people are shouting in their local dialect, the Lyconian language, that Paul and Barnabas are now gods that have visited them, it's pretty clear they have no idea what they're saying. That's why it took so long before they became horrified at what was going on. They had no clue what they were saying. I don't mean this literally about these guys who only spoke Aramaic, Greek, or Latin. What I mean is that they labored hard to speak what you might call the people's heart language. They worked really hard to communicate in a way that the people could understand and connect with. In fact, if you look at all the different narratives in the book of Acts, if you just flip back one chapter in Acts 13, you see this. Paul and Barnabas go to a Jewish synagogue in a big city called Antioch. There, they know they're speaking to people who are religious. They are familiar with the Hebrew scriptures. So, no surprise, he just dives right in and talks to them about the history of Israel. Talks to them about the law of Moses. He's quoting from what? The book of Psalms. From different parts of the Old Testament. The prophets. And he's telling them that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. He assumes they believe in God because they do. He's just trying to convince them that Jesus really is their Savior. 
But if you were to flip forward to Acts chapter 17, a different place. There, Paul and Barnabas are now in Athens. And this time, they're talking to a bunch of highly educated philosophers. So if Paul talks to them about Jesus, does he talk about Abraham? No. Does he appeal to the Jewish scriptures? No. Does he talk to them about the history of the law of Moses? Does he even mention the Messiah? No. He's talking to them, you see, about Greek philosophy. And he's quoting to them the poet Epimenides and the Stoic philosopher Cleanthes. He's talking to Greek philosophy nerds, so he becomes one himself. To communicate, to connect, to love, to instruct. Now check out here in Lystra. What do Paul and Barnabas do? Here they are in Acts chapter 14, and we know historically the Lystrans were polytheists. They believed in many different gods. We know they weren't elite Roman citizens. They weren't highly educated folks. They weren't all into philosophy. They weren't wealthy. They were just ordinary, common folk. So, who do, so what, what do Paul and Barnabas do? Do they immediately start quoting the Bible? No. Do they appeal to Greek philosophers and poets this time? No, they do not. Rather, they talk about things that anyone can understand. They talk about things that anyone can connect with. They appeal to universal human experience. Let me read it to you and show you how. Starting in verse 15. Friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human like you. We are bringing you good news. Telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your heart with joy. What's Paul's big sophisticated communication strategy, he says, hey, do you remember that rainstorm a couple weeks ago? Can we think about that? He says, hey, what, what was the last really tasty meal that you enjoyed? Can we talk about where that came from? He says, hey, remember that great night of laughter and joy that you experienced? Could it be possible that there's a God who has given that to you as a gift. The way in which Paul points to rain and crops and food and joy. And he uses this as evidence. He says as a testimony. Of who God really is. Even if you never knew he was there. The kindness of God. You see where he says. God gave all mankind a very long leash. Oh the patience of God. That he would be so generous in pouring out into your life, my life, blessing after blessing after blessing, your friendships, your family, your job, the sky, the sun, the trees, the city, the little joys in life, the laughter, the food, everything you have comes from him as a gift, not what you deserve as a gift. And he's patiently Still giving it to you again and again, even if you have not said thank you, not once. Even if you have not acknowledged him, not once. 
Even if you run from Him always. What a patient God. What a kind God. What a gracious God. Do you want to know this God? Dear friends. Paul points them to the normal things in life. And not only to these tangibles. He also points them to one other thing. Something else that everyone experiences. That deep feeling of emptiness inside. You see, in the middle of verse 15, you saw Paul says, we are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God. Why does Paul call the false gods that the people are worshiping worthless? Well, this is what he's telling them. Look, you you are worshiping idols. And he's telling us, you are worshiping idols. It might be Zeus and Hermes, or it might be other things that you're treating like a god. It might be the god of love and romance. It might be the god of a successful career, or the god of money, or the god of a happy family, or the god of physical fitness, or the god of people's approval, or of crack or booze, or even the god of a moral and respectable life. You might not even call yourself religious, but you're worshiping that thing, aren't you? You're giving your whole life to it. You're living for it, asking it to give you meaning and significance in your life. And here's the thing. It can't. It can't. These things promise you all sorts of things, fulfillment and happiness and peace and security, but they cannot deliver because they're dead. And you might, you might give in to their demand that you sacrifice to this God. If you want a successful career, this is what you need to give up. If you want happiness, this is what you need to betray. If you want money or a better body, this is what you need to fork over at the altar of this God. And some of us are doing that day in and day out. And you wonder why you're being left feeling empty and dissatisfied. And so Paul calls them not just false God, but worthless things because they can't deliver and they make you feel worthless in return. These gods are dead. They cannot give you life. But here's good news. There's a living God who can give you life, his life. And he did it not first by demanding that you make sacrifices to him, but by him making the ultimate sacrifice for you. The story of a God who indeed did come in human form, the person of Jesus, laying down his life, dying as penalty for all of your sin and selfishness and your bowing to worthless idols, giving himself for you. This is good news. And the apostle here, of course, he doesn't spell out explicitly the person and the work of Jesus, but he does allude to it in verse 16, where he says, in the past, God let all nations go their own way. But look, now God is doing something new. Do you understand? See, Paul and Barnabas, they could have just said, look, let me tell you the truth. There's one God and you're not believing in him. God is good. God is powerful. 
We're accountable to him because we are sinful and enslaved by the false gods in our lives. We all try to save ourselves in the wrong way. In God's patience, he gives all of us a very long leash. But now he's calling us to put our trust in Jesus and find true life in him. He does sort of say that. But where he starts is this. Wasn't that lunch great? Don't you love to laugh? And could it be that that might be the greatest evidence to you of the kindness of a God who wants to save you? And so we are in the pattern of the apostles, a church that's committed to speaking people's language, to connecting with you to translating, almost like a foreign language, what we know to be a lot of technical terms and hard facts and difficult to understand themes that you find in the Bible and in Christian communities and to explain them to you and to interpret them for you. Really, all this is, is simply love, isn't it? It's just trying to be helpful. It's trying to meet you where you're at because that's the story of the gospel. God didn't say, find me in heaven, I'll see you when I see you. God in heaven came to earth, to you, to die, to live, to give us life and rescue us from these worthless things. This is the message that we seek to communicate, whether through intellectual arguments, some of you connect that way, whether through personal experience, some of you connect in that way, a community that meets you where you are. And lastly and thirdly, we want to be a community that's patiently committed to you. Just want to point this out quickly to finish up here. Paul and Barnabas give this great speech, this great sermon, right? Great conversation with the Lystrans, and how do the Lystrans respond? Oh, sign me up. Sign me up. Verse 18. Even with these words, the Lystrans had difficult... No, sorry. Paul and Barnabas had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. No one immediately changed their mind. Why would we think they would, humanly speaking? No one said, oh my gosh, I want to give my life to Jesus. How many conversions are there on that day? How many lives were radically changed on that day? As far as we can tell, none. And it's not that God doesn't have the power to have done something far more significant, but it points us to this reality. That Paul and Barnabas were signed up for the process of walking in real life and relationships with people. They hung in there with them. In fact, we're told in verse 19 that the crowd actually turned against Paul and Barnabas, instigated by Jews that were hostile to the Christian faith in that local area. They stoned Paul. He almost dies. And then get this in verse 20. It's amazing. We're told after the disciples had gathered around him, bloodied and bruised and almost dead, he got up and did what? Went back. Went back into the city. Because I've got unfinished business to take care of there. Lives to love, people to befriend. A story about God to communicate. Later they left to visit another city, but they came 
back, we're told, in the following verses. Because they understood, and we want to be a church that understands that coming to know the God of the Bible is a process and not simply a one-time event. God opens hearts. God opens hearts. And so it's not our responsibility to coerce you or to pry open your heart or to guilt you into believing or scare you into believing or hammer you or twist your arms or force you into becoming a Christian because God can do that and that's his ultimate job. That's the story of every person that comes to faith in Christ. In the meanwhile, it's a process of intellectually and emotionally walking together in an honest environment, a safe environment, a relational environment where we can truly come to see who Jesus is and come to trust in him. Because in due time, you never know. Because in due time, you never know, you know. Because there was that day, somewhere in that city, a man in Lystra named Timothy, who had a Jewish mother and a Greek pagan father. We don't know if he was there when Paul and Barnabas preached that sermon, taught that teaching, or if he learned about the good news of Christ at a later date. But we do know this, that not long later, he came to faith in Christ and eventually became one of the great leaders in the church in that reason. If you would have asked the Apostle Paul that day, bloodied and bruised and almost dead, if he would have anticipated that, I'm not sure what he would have said. But this is the fruit of his patience and perseverance and commitment to go back in. To hang in there. In fact, now we even have two letters in the New Testament that Paul wrote to Timothy explaining their relationship. And when we read those letters, we learn that For Timothy, it's even a longer process than that, not just starting when Paul showed up, but he has a mother, Eunice, and a grandmother, Lois, who exposed him to the Bible when he was a child. No, he didn't believe, not until this day when Paul shows up. But you see, God had been in work, at work in his heart and in his mind and in his life, even since childhood. Even as a mystery to him, God had been, as it were, carefully placing wood in the fireplace of Timothy's soul. Until one day when two Christians come to Lystra many years later, the Holy Spirit brings the fire of conviction and understanding. The wood is ignited and the fire of newfound faith suddenly starts within him. But it began a long time ago with a woman named Eunice and a grandma named Lois. And you just never know how long God has been at work in this process. We want to be a part of your life and your journey, a church that might be in through to the end or maybe just for a little stage. Patiently being committed to you, walking with you. No matter where you're at with your ups and your downs, but honestly and earnestly presenting to you the story and the truth of Jesus, God who came in human form, God himself, our Savior, that you too might come to know him just maybe one day. It would be our joy to see that. It's our heart's desire. It's why we are what we call a spiritually diverse community and dear friends with all our hearts we welcome you here let's pray father we pray that we would have your heart 
That we would learn to welcome as you welcome. That we would be patient as you are patient with us. That we would be empathetic as you have been empathetic, sympathetic with us. That we would learn to speak to others as you have spoken to us. That we would all have wide open hearts and that you would do your work in us. Because we all need to be changed in different ways we do. But ignite this church with what we're calling the spirit of Christ that results in a spiritually diverse community. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing and marinate on some of this in our hearts. Amen.